It is my honor to introduce this morning our guest speaker, Dr. Craig Ott. Uh, he is a professor at one of our uh, denominational schools, at the seminary specifically. We call it uh, TED's, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's been a professor there for quite some time. Uh, but his story goes back actually here. So you can see in the bottom left there, Dr. Ott began attending Delray in 1970. So he goes, he goes way back here in the life of the church. He got a, a bug to uh, go to seminary and ended up uh, going to TEDS in, uh, in, in there you can see in 1974. And subsequently, he became a missionary overseas in the 80s. And he has been serving the nations for decades. And as a congregation, Delray Church has partnered with Dr. Ott and his family in, in giving because we, we love supporting missions. So you know our church, uh, if you go on our website, you can read about our missionaries and we support missionaries. And uh, most recently we've sent out who we colloquially refer to as Marlon and Jimena. So in many ways, when I think of Dr. Ott, I think of like, you know, th that was the Marlon and Jimena of that generation who were sent out uh, to, to reach the unreached and to serve the global church. So. We are blessed this morning that he is in town. If you want to find out more about Dr. Ott, there is a newsletter on the circle table out there in the entryway that uh, shows you how to stay connected with him and how to pray for him and all of that good stuff. So without further ado, would you welcome Dr. Ott to deliver the word this morning? <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, Pastor Matt. It is uh, just great to be here. It is very much like a coming home. I became a new Christian. I was grow grew up in an atheist family, and uh, during the, about 1970, my freshman year at college at Long Beach State, I, I discovered Jesus Christ. He discovered me and uh, became a Christian. And this was the very first church I ever attended on a Sunday morning. I'd been to weddings, but I had never been to a Sunday morning worship service. Uh, my mother had just moved right down the street on 83rd Street here in, in the apartments there. And, uh, and so this, and this church really embraced the Jesus movement. Those were the days when the Jesus movement was just sort of breaking open. And, and it was a little chaotic around here. One of the elders got hepatitis because there were hippies coming in barefoot and, and uh, not very hygienic and all the rest. But, uh, but God really used that. And because the church was willing to kind of roll with those punches and, and embrace and sense God's doing something, uh, it was a real time of blessing in this church and a blessing in my own life. Uh, I, I mentioned to Matt just a minute ago when uh, we were looking around the, the campus here a little on the Timothy Hall over there, and I said, you know, the very first time I taught anything as a Christian, I was probably less than a year old as a believer, was, was in the upstairs, one of those Sunday school rooms in Timothy Hall over there. It was a youth group, and I didn't really do very well at all. Um, who would have thought I'd become a seminary professor, uh, you know, a few decades later. But anyway, this church had a great impact on my life. Uh, and, and at that time, John Stensether was pastor here. Ken Kemp was youth pastor. He later became senior pastor. Um, but there, it was the lay people, I want to encourage some of you who are investing in young people. Uh, it was some of those laymen, and they weren't, they weren't hip. They were old sort of traditionalist sort of folk. Um, nothing fancy. Bob Wilson, uh, uh, Ron Mock, uh, um, oh, uh, Richard Norris, the, who really kind of took some of us young people under their wings, uh, mentored us, and, uh, and invested in our lives. And I'm deeply grateful to those people, and I'm deeply grateful to this church. And for the last 40-some-odd years, uh, this church has supported us as your ambassadors for Christ internationally. And we are so grateful for that. So thank you so much for partnering and continue to do that kind of work, uh, investing in people who will, will bear fruit for the kingdom, whether it's right here locally or at the ends of the earth. Um, well, let me pray before we get into the Word. Dear gracious God, it is such a privilege to be able to gather together on this day to worship you. And right now we want to open up your Word and we are asking you, God, to, to speak to our hearts, to strengthen our wills, to serve and love you and follow you, and to guide us into your truth. And so we ask you, God, to be our teacher this morning, to expand our vision, 
for what you're doing and how we can be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned a whole bunch of names you uh, probably never heard of. Um, but one name you probably almost surely have heard of is Steve Jobs. Anybody heard of Steve Jobs? That name ring any bells out there? Okay, we all know Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, uh, you know, computers and so on. He said that all computers do is fetch and shuffle numbers, but do it fast enough that the results appear to be magic. And uh, of course that magic earned him a lot of money and revolutionized the digital world. Now when he was a young man, before he became famous, he once said, I want to put a, quote, ding in the universe. Well, that's, that's pretty bold, bold vision for your life. A, a, a ding in the universe? I mean, how about a ding on planet Earth? Would that not be big enough? Uh, uh, a ding, ding on Los Angeles? Uh, a ding on the universe. Well, I don't know if you want to consider his computer revolution uh, a ding on the universe or not. But he did impact probably more lives in many ways than, than any other person in recent history. But Jesus Christ has called us to do something way bigger than to put a ding in the universe. He's called us as his followers to put, if you will, a ding in eternity. We just read in the scripture reading from Matthew 28 that Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, to obey all that I have taught you. That is an incredible task, and yet that is what he has called us to. He has called us to make an impact a life here that extends into eternity. And that's all of us. That's not the special people. It's not the Apostle Paul's or the Pastor Matt's or the Craig Ott's or the one whose names that you may hear about. We are called to make an impact on eternity. We are called to be messengers of the sin-forgiving, life-transforming, evil-conquering, Satan-defeating, Brokenness healing, racial reconciling, society revolutionary, revolutionizing, and heaven populating gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's called us to. Now, if you're like me, a lot of your Christian life's kind of ho-hum. I hope that today you get shaken a little bit out of the ho-hum. Because this is what God has called us to. Well, I want to read our scripture for today, the, the, the teaching text in Acts chapter 1. I'll read the first 11 verses. And so Luke, the author of this book, was also the author of the Gospel of Luke. So in the beginning, when he says my former book, that's what he's referring to. So Acts chapter 1. In my former book, that would be the Gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hit him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, 
when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now, this is really interesting. This last encounter, this is probably the very last encounter between Jesus and his disciples after his resurrection. Now, as the text said, Jesus had been appearing to them for 40 days. And Luke is very clear about this, saying that he appeared with many proofs that he was alive. Now, make no mistake, Jesus rose from the dead. These, these were not some sort of mass hallucinations or uh, some wishful thinking. Jesus had been appearing to them, and he'd been teaching them about the kingdom. And so what is the, these last words before Jesus ascends to heaven and will not physically appear on earth in that sense again? Well, he was teaching them about the kingdom, and then he told them that they should not leave Jerusalem <clears throat> until the promise of God had been fulfilled that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist baptized with water, and they're going to be baptized with the Spirit. Now, baptism with water, the word baptize is just a Greek word for immerse. You get dunked. Now, now, think about this for just a minute. Jesus is saying the same way you kind of get dunked into the water, but River Jordan, you, you go under. I mean, you are immersed. You're going to get sort of immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an idea. That's a thought that ought to be utterly like, wait a minute, Jesus, can you explain that better? I mean, <clears throat> that's never happened, not even in the Old Testament. I mean, your spirit would come on to people and fill them once in a while, but, but to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? I mean, Jesus, that is amazing. Tell us more. But what's on their mind? Look, what they do is they ask him a very different kind of question. In verse 6, they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? They're wondering when that kingdom of God in fullness is going to come. They're not, they're not wondering, maybe they thought, well, maybe this baptism of the Spirit has something to do with the coming kingdom. Uh, they weren't really putting things together very well at this point. And, uh, but they want to know when's the kingdom really going to come. Jesus, when you, you came as suffering servant, you gave your life as a ransom for our sin, you rose again to conquer death, so... Finish the story, come on. Let's get the kingdom all the way here now. We saw it kind of a sign here and a sign there. He said, if I cast out demons, the kingdom's in your midst. But when is the kingdom where you are the reigning king and you are going to conquer all evil once and for all? When's it going to happen? See, because the world has become a, a pretty dangerous place. You may recall the, the disciples, they were hiding behind locked doors after the crucifixion when Jesus appeared to them. I mean, they were scared. It was a dangerous place for people who were associated with this, uh, this rogue Messiah figure, Jesus of Nazareth. And so they're thinking, hey, uh, you know, when, when, the, when is the, the really good part going to happen here? Oh, and by the way, Jesus had promised them, that it appears twice in the Gospels, in Matthew 19 and Luke 22, where Jesus says to these disciples, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, they're probably saying, that sounds pretty good. So, Jesus, when do you get on your throne, and when do we get our twelve thrones? and then life is going to be really good, right? So that's what they're thinking of. So when's that going to happen? Now we're going to find out that was... It's not a bad question, but that's not the issue in their life right now. Now I have to say that I think some of us are kind of a little bit in that place. It's like, Jesus, when's the kingdom going to come? I mean, life's pretty hard here. And, you know, it's even getting harder for Christians. Even in the United States, life is not as comfortable as it was even, you know, a few decades ago. And um, so Jesus, hurry on back. Come back soon. And that is a prayer. We want Jesus to return. 
But we become preoccupied with that. The world is a dangerous place. We should not be surprised by this. We should not be surprised that society doesn't like Christians. Why are we surprised by this? Why are we surprised when the government starts restricting our freedoms? Why are we surprised by this? Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Do not be surprised. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the, the 70 or 72, depending on how you read the text, he sent them out on ministry trips, little journeys. And one of the things he said there had to really take them back. He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Whoa. Now, if I was one of the 12, I would have probably said, Jesus, wait a minute, didn't, didn't you misspeak there? Didn't you mean you're sending us out like wolves among sheep? That, I mean, that sounds good, but no, no. Sheep among wolves. That usually does not go well for the sheep. But that's what Jesus said. Now, why do we think we're exceptional? Yes, the world is not pro-Christian. Yes, we want Jesus to return. But we should not be surprised. In fact, Jesus sends us like the sheep among wolves. He actually sends us out like sheep among wolves. He sends us into that world. I mean, it sounds a little bit reckless, running into danger. I'm not suggesting you or a missionary or anybody else should sort of recklessly uh, uh, sort of provoke opposition or persecution. Sometimes we just do dumb things that get us in trouble. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about opposition to Jesus, to the plan of God. So I'm not getting down to the disciples for asking this question. It's a totally natural question. Say, okay, now, now when's the kingdom going to come? But notice how now the answer fully redirects them. Now, by the way, just let me throw this in. I've done a lot of work in China in the last few years, uh, mobilizing Chinese missionary China. And we're talking mainland China, communist China. The, the church there, of course, maybe you've heard of the growth, and they're starting to send missionaries, but they have almost no training. So I've been doing a, a good bit of missionary training uh, uh, for Chinese missionaries and training trainers of Chinese missionaries. Fantastic work. But uh, one of the last visits when I was there, the government was just beginning to crack down. You may have heard in the last couple of years the Chinese government is starting to do a lot more restrictions on Christians. They had quite a lot of freedom there for a while, um, but that's changed. Well, they were just starting to, to crack down, and uh, I was in a meeting with pastors, and he just got a phone call that his the building their church was renting was canceled, and things were beginning to, to get difficult. And when one of the pastors just said, well, you know, uh, you know, we've, this will probably be good for us to have some opposition. We've been spiritually getting a little bit lazy, and, you know, it doesn't really cost much to be a Christian. This will be good for the church. You know, I thought, wow, I've not heard that attitude very many times in the United States. Um, where, where they saw some of the freedoms they were having was an opportunity for the gospel, but not always, no, is even healthy. So, so Jesus' answer then comes in verse 7. It's not for you to know the times of the days of the Father. You know, the, the, God has set that time this is not your concern. You should not be sort of hunkering down until Jesus returns. You're like, well, gee, if it's only another month, you know, we'll, we'll hunker down here and, and we'll hold out. But boy, if it's a lot longer than that, then what? No, no, this is not the question. The question now is something totally different. He says, but when you, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you have a job to do between now and that time. This time between the comings. That's what you need to be concerned about, is what you're doing now. So that's the first part of his answer. Now, 
they had to have wondered, what is that going to really look like, what you just described? Well, let's break that down a little. He says, you're going to be witnesses. I think this is, what is the activity part? He says, you will be my witnesses. Now think about that for just a minute. What, is, what does a witness do? See, their job is not to be worrying about the 12 thrones. <laughs> they should be thinking about being Jesus' witnesses. Now, what does a witness do? This is not the language of a throne room. This is the language of the courtroom. And what is the job of a witness in a courtroom? Is the witness the judge? No. Is the witness the jury? No. Is the witness the lawyer that has to, to give a fancy plea and, and make the argument? No. What's a witness do? Just tells what you saw. Tell what you experienced. Tell what you heard. That's it. Do that. These people had lived with Jesus. They'd walked with Jesus. They'd received Jesus' teaching. Pretty much like you and me, we didn't physically walk with Jesus, but we have Jesus' teaching actually in some ways clearer than they did in the Scripture. And Jesus says, be my witnesses. Bear testimony. That's your job. This is not a witness to a philosophy. It's not a witness to a religion. It's not a witness to God as a higher power. It is not a witness to some vague God is love. This is a witness to a person. Jesus Christ. What did you see, learn, experience, here with Jesus Christ. That's not real complicated. When he calls us to be witnesses, that's it. Can you just tell somebody else, like a witness, not making a big argument, what have you learned, what have you experienced with Jesus Christ? Not complicated. Do that. Do that. That's what I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves to do. And they might kill you. Yes, they might. So that's the calling. Now, by the way, we sometimes hear this language of silent witness. Ever heard of that? Silent witness? What on earth is a silent witness? Can somebody explain that to me? If you were in a courtroom and you called a witness to the witness stand, you know, to and, the, and, you know, the, the attorney asks this question, and the guy says, no, I'm a silent witness. Come on. Now, of course, our testimony has to be in alignment with, you know, who we are, and the witness is a credible witness, you know, integrity, and, you know. So, sure, of course we have to have lives of integrity. But silent witness? I'm sorry. Now, there are many good things that churches and missionaries should do that's not just about talking and telling a message. Don't misunderstand me. But one thing's for sure, to be a witness for Jesus is to talk and tell about Jesus and not to be a silent witness, whatever that means. Okay? Was I clear enough on that? Because there, believe it or not, there's a lot of confusion out there about that. Anybody heard that line, um, bear witness to the gospel at all times, use words if necessary? Can you just kind of hit the delete button on that one? First of all, uh, St. Francis didn't ever really say it quite like that to begin with, and it's just not true. So to be a witness is to give verbal testimony to Jesus. And that is what God has called us to do. If you are sending missionaries, they may be do, medical missionaries, they may be doing other good works and so on, but are they also giving verbal testimony to who Jesus is? That's important. That's what Jesus has called us to. It's a mission with a message. Now, another part of this response of Jesus is that that witness is going to extend to the ends of the earth 
And you've probably heard the, the sort of the language of concentric circles of sorts. Geographically, that's kind of true. So Jerusalem, and then Judea was kind of the region around Jerusalem. Samaria was a little further up. And uh, the thing about Samaria was the Samaritans, they were kind of um, a mix between the, they intermarried with the Syrians and Jews. So they're kind of, some would say they were syncretistic Jews. They, they didn't believe quite like Orthodox Jews would, but so the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along famously. You're gonna be witnesses there. And then to the ends of the earth. In other words, into the Gentile world. And so this witness is going to be breaking all kinds of barriers. It's gonna break social barriers because Jews didn't hang out with Gen Samaritans and they especially didn't hang out with Gentiles. It's geographic barriers. It is religious barriers. That this witness for Jesus Christ, it keeps moving outward. It keeps overcoming those barriers. And you say, well, those people aren't like me. You know, so, so I don't know. And Jesus said, no, those very kind of people that are not like you, you're going to be witnesses among them. And no, it may not end well, but that's what you are going to be empowered to do. And that's what he's called us to do. Now, this phrase, ends of the earth, it's a very cool phrase if you are a Bible student, because it occurs all the time in the Old Testament. It's just kind of like God's way of saying the whole creation, like, like the whole of, of what God has created, everybody. And, and it has a particular prophetic element. In Isaiah, one of the messianic prophecies, uh, in Isaiah 49, uh, 49.6, for example, God says, I will make you, that is the Messiah, a light to the Gentiles that my salvation, my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. And, uh, and there are in the Psalms, and I'm just giving you a couple examples, there's a lot of references, but Psalm 22, 27 uh, looks forward to the fulfillment and it says, and all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and the families, all the families and nations will bow down before him. This is going to come to pass. And so when Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. You are going to be my instruments in seeing that happen. Can I tell you that? You, sitting there in the chair, whatever your name is, you, as a witness for Jesus, are a part of God's vision for history, which will be fulfilled. You are an instrument in making that happen. That's amazing that God has chosen people like you and me, to have a role to play in his amazing salvation history story. And so the book of Acts kind of unfolds that whole story. And by the way, the disciples themselves were really quite surprised at the way this unfolded. They were kind of thinking that Gentiles, well, fine, they'll just become Jews. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. So, okay, guys, you're going to have to get circumcised. You become Jewish. Then you can be part of the Messianic kingdom. That's not the way it went. Philip goes to Samaria and preaches, and, and they become Christians, and, and then the Jerusalem apostles go, wait, 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 wait a minute, we better send John and, and James up there and check that out. Samaritans becoming followers of Jesus? Well, that wasn't enough. Then in, in Acts 11, uh, no, later in Acts chapter 8, it says, the disciples, by the way, they didn't even go out from Jerusalem. They just hunkered down in Jerusalem. Even after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit came, they were just kind of hunkering down. They weren't immediately running out to the ends of the earth. It's not until persecution breaks out. It says in Acts 8, those who were scattered uh, preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And they come to faith. Persecution drove them out. This is the way our churches are. It's sort of the spiritual law of entropy. You know what the law of entropy is, right? <laughs> an object at rest will stay at rest until acted upon by an outside force. A lot of churches are kind of like that. A lot of Christians are kind of like that, you know? A lot of wives might say that about their husbands, you know. They remain at rest until acted upon by an outside force. And a lot of churches are kind of like that. Well, you know, as long as people are showing up at church, the bills are paid, and pastor preaches a reasonably good sermon, and, you know, people stay out of trouble, and, well, we're... we're Fairly content, right? An object at rest. And that's not that what Jesus called us to. 
How many of you ever said to your kid, what don't you understand about the word no? Anybody said that? Come on. It's true confessions here. A couple of you, it's a corny phrase, I know, maybe my older generation. What don't you understand about the word no? I think Jesus would say, what don't you understand about the word go? So they're hunkering down, it's when persecution comes. And then, it's, we're told later in Acts chapter 8, uh, starting verse 19, those who had been scattered uh, by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So we're getting in the Gentile world now. Spreading the word only among Jews. They're not getting it yet. Geographically, they're in the Gentile world, but they're thinking, well, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. We're only going to preach to Jews. However, some of them, from Cyprus and Cyrene, not from Jerusalem, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And it was another one of those situations where the apostles were going, wait, wait a minute, Antioch? I mean, this place is famous for being sin city. It's like the Las Vegas of, you know, the ancient world. I mean, it was famous for being a sinful place. And now people are claiming, these Gentiles are claiming to be followers of Jesus. They're not kosher. So what do they do? They, they choose this guy named Barnabas to go up there and check it out. They send up Barnabas. <clears throat> it's a good thing they sent Barnabas. Because when he got up there, I'm sure there was a lot of messiness. Whew. He probably thought, man... A lot of work to be done here. But you know what the scripture says when he got up there? He saw the grace of God. Saw the grace of God. Some of the folks here at Del Rey, when the Jesus move was happening, oh, a lot of messiness. But there were people who had eyes to see the grace of God. They could look over the, the messy part and see that God was at work. That's what Barnabas did. And, and, and what happens, irony of ironies, it's not the Jerusalem church that launches the first Gentile mission with Paul and Barnabas and others. It's this largely Gentile church of really probably pretty sinful people that launched the Gentile mission. All kinds of surprises. Peter wouldn't even enter the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, until God gave him three times a vision then he finally goes, and what happens? Peter can't even finish his sermon, and the Holy Spirit falls on, on Cornelius. I mean, this is just one surprise after the next, like God is doing something really different here that we did not think it was going to go this way. So, how on earth could this happen? I mean, the only way this could happen was this last piece of what Jesus said, which is really kind of the first thing he said. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The only way we could make that ding in eternity, so to speak, is because God himself is doing it. There is no way under human power, logic, argument, you name it, we are going to convince people to become followers of Jesus. It will be the power of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. The Spirit of God. And that's why Jesus told him, don't leave. Don't even try and go out. I mean, he had told them in other places that they should disciple the nations and preach the gospel to all people. But he says, don't even think about leaving Jerusalem until you've received the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts, as you just read through the book of Acts, you're just going to continually see it was the Holy Spirit doing this, uh, converting people and giving power to the preaching of the word, sometimes miracles and other events, confirming that. And so the gospel goes out, and that is the story of the book of Acts. So, this is a story of being a witness to the endless of the earth, to the person of Jesus Christ. And that story is still being written. 
Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom will be preached among all nations, and then the end will come. Now, depending on how you, you sort of count these things, there are still groups of people who have never heard the gospel. We've made tremendous progress, but there are still places where the gospel has not been at least clearly presented and where there's definitely no church that could embody a gospel community. And that's why this job's not finished, not even close. And there is talk in some church, well, we, you know, we don't need to send American missionaries and all, and, and I know that Americans are not welcome everywhere and probably other people could do some things better. But I'm gonna tell you, there's an awful lot of places in the world where even an American missionary is better than no missionary. Think of the country of Turkey. I was, at Turkey, I was in Turkey two times this last year, 2022. Turkey is one of the least reached nations in the world. We're talking about 85 million people, almost all of them are Muslims. There's only about 160,000 nominal Christians. Most of those are Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. There's maybe 100 Protestant churches and probably half of those are house churches. They're not big. So some estimates are that there's probably not more than about 8,000 Bible believers in Turkey. Now that means every single believer would have to evangelize about 11,000 people. There is a need for gospel workers to go to places like Turkey. I want to tell you a few stories here um, before wrapping up about how this story keeps getting written. You know, the book of Acts does not have a proper ending. You, you all know that, and organizations call themselves cutely Acts 29, because Acts ends at Acts 28. Um, but it, there's a reason. Uh, actually, Bible experts say that that's just called a rhetorical, it's a rhetorical way of saying the story is not over. It just kind of stops with Paul under house arrest in Rome. I mean. It's, there's no blessing, happily lived, happily ever after, anything. It just kind of stops. And this is sort of a rhetorical method of saying that story's not done. And it's up to the reader to finish it. And here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and the story's not done yet. But it's still being written. And we still have a role to play. You still have a role to play. Well, let me give you a few international examples. I mentioned these surprises in the, in the book of Acts where the apostles just, you know, things were happening they weren't expecting. Things are happening today that people just don't expect and haven't expected, but God is doing it. I want to give you an example from the country of Nepal. Nepal, I visited Nepal a couple of times. By the way, my ministry at Trinity, I, I've been teaching about 75%, and the other 25% of my time, I'm doing international consulting, workshops, then we, we did a couple of church planting workshops in Nepal. Now, in Nepal, the first Protestant church in Nepal was started in 1950. Nepal has been a Hindu kingdom. You've heard of Islamic states and so on. Well, this was a Hindu state, the state religion, and very, very limited freedoms for Christians. In fact, on my first visit, I met one of the pastors of the second Protestant church that was started in, uh, in Nepal. Now, in 2008, there was a communist Maoist revolution, and surprise, the church got more freedom. So, God has a sense of humor sometimes, I think. But what happened was the church began to explode. And so, in 1986, it was less than a tenth of a percent of the population would have been considered Christian. By 2022, it's about 3% or... 800,000 believers. So from 1950, where you're talking about literally dozens of believers in Nepal, to eight, roughly 800,000, some say more. That's what God's doing. Now, when I visited Nepal, we were doing church planner training. I want to get our slides up here. I want to show you a couple pictures just so you can visually... Oh, do I turn it on? Oh, there we go. Okay. So 
Now this man here was at our church planner training. We did two trainings, one after the other, sort of a follow-up training. One, uh, I think they were two years apart. And so this guy's name is Krishna. <laughs> well, as you might imagine, he is a first-generation Hindu background believer in Jesus. Never had any formal Bible training or anything, but became a pastor. That's the way it is in a lot of these places. Um, and he was pastor of a church. And when we were there the first time, we were telling them about planting house churches. Well, this was a new idea to him. And um, so when we came back two years later, he had this chart, and he began, and we always like to have the local people telling their stories about their ministry, and he begins telling his story. They went out and they planted nine churches in those two years. They were going from village to village, uh, doing little gospel campaigns, preaching the gospel in the villages, People were embracing the gospel. And he said, you know, we thought you had to have a building to start a church. And because we didn't have money to buy a building, we couldn't plant new churches. And when we found out we could just do house churches, we could meet under a tree, we could meet on a, in, a, in the yard, we started just going and, and preaching and starting churches. And they started nine churches. He's still doing it. One of my colleagues is still involved very much in mentoring him. This is what God is doing. Um, this picture here, this man in the red shirt with the Bible in his hand, he was the village shaman who came to faith in Christ. Now he's leading a little house church there. Now I want you to think about that. You talk about different roles for missionaries. These Nepali evangelists are incredibly gifted. But man, is there a need for discipleship and teaching. So one of the missionaries I know has worked there has done a lot of training of these little house church leaders in fact, one of the guys that uh, was at our, our training, his name was Indra. He's from the Sherpa tribe. By Sherpas are just not, you know, guides up the mountains, the Himalayas. Sherpa is a, a tribal, uh, an ethnic group. But anyway, he was one of the first believers from, from the, uh, the Sherpa. His father was the village shaman. And a shaman is like a, we might say witch doctor or something like that. But, and uh, he was, as a high school student, he came to faith in Christ. And he started leading his schoolmates to Christ. And a bunch of them were coming to Christ, a lot of them. And finally, his father banned him from the village. And so he fled to India. But then the Lord laid it on his heart to go back. And he went back to these villages in these mountains where you literally have to hike. You can't even drive to a lot of these villages. And started evangelizing and starting little house churches. And so what he would do is he would go on a Saturday... And these house church leaders, they would hike for a couple hours to come together on a Saturday. He would give them some teaching. They'd turn around, go back home, and on the next day, they'd preach whatever they learned in, in their churches. The church is just exploding so quickly, they really can't keep up with the leadership development. But the Holy Spirit is doing this. This is something no one could have predicted. Uh, Indra, the guy who was just describing the Sherpa days, he started 18 churches in the high Himalayas with the Sherpa people. Well, I could keep going on, on Nepal. Um, let's, let's move over to Iran. Um, now, most of us know the story of Iran, the Islamic Revolution. Isla uh, Iran became an Islamic state back um, 1979. Some of you are old enough to remember the Iran hostage crisis or, or seen the movie, uh, what is it, Argo. Uh, you know, about hostages from in Iran. Uh, and to this day, uh, it's been in the news how, as an Islamic state, women have to wear the, the full head covering, and if they don't, they have morality police that will arrest them, and then a lot of the uprisings that have been happening in the last months are related to this. Uh, so it is an Islamic state where the Quran is the constitution. The Quran's not just a religious book, it's the constitution of, of the country. And, um, but God is at work at Iran. It is amazing. In 1979, at the time of the Islamic Revolution, there were maybe 500 evangelical Christians. Today, the estimates are at least a million, maybe one and a half million. No one knows. Now, one of my students at Trinity, a doctoral student, has worked for about 20 years among Iranians. And he's saying they've never seen anything like it, what they're seeing now of Iranians coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He's been doing leadership training, training pastors. 
There was uh, one survey identified only about a third of Iranians identified themselves as Shia Muslims, totally different than what the government says. In fact, Iran's intelligence minister, Mahmoud Alavi, openly admitted to summoning Christians, con Christian converts to question them, saying, and I quote, conversions are happening right under our eyes, <laughs> and that was in a conference for Muslim leaders. Now, they've been cracking down and so this one of my earlier trips last March to Turkey, I was meeting with refugees, several of them from Iran. And uh, it, these were amazing stories. I want to show you a picture of this man. His name is Aslan. He, you can see, maybe make out on the side of his neck a tattoo. What's it say? Jesus. He tattooed the name Jesus on his neck. He had to flee for his life. He was attacked by his cousins because he had become a Christian. And he had nowhere to go, so he went to... By the way, these guys were teaching me the book of Acts. I went over there to teach the book of Acts, and they're teaching me the book of Acts. You know, we're talking about the stoning of Stephen. They go, oh yeah, we've seen stonings. We've seen Christians get stoned. Where we Like, really? And, and, then, uh, and then he was pursued by his family. He fled to Turkey, and they came after him. So we're reading about the Apostle Paul and the, and the Jews following Paul from city to city. He said, oh yeah, that's what my family's doing to me. Talking about demon possessions and, and sorcerers and all the rest. They're telling me the book of Acts, 21st century version. Now why did he tattoo? I said, okay, I got to know. <laughs> you know, what's with the Jesus tattoo on your neck? He said, well, he said there was a situation where I was so frustrated I, I denied Jesus. And I went home and I felt so bad. I said, I'm going to tattoo the name of Jesus on my neck where I can't hide it. So I will never deny Jesus again. Okay. There were others there. I met this man, an Iranian. Whoops. Did I turn it off there? This is Ibrahim. He's an Iranian. He was a zealot. He was an Islamic zealot. His father was a mullah, a, a teacher, an Islamic teacher. And he came to faith in Christ. Well, actually, while he was still in Iran, he had not come to faith. He was only beginning to ask questions about Jesus and beginning to say, well, maybe Islam is not as good as we thought it was. And he was pursued and, and persecuted, fled to Turkey. By the way, these refugees are not looking for a better life. Some of them are fleeing a very good life. Business people have homes, cars, family, leaving it all behind on a moment's notice because their lives are being pursued. And he was a zealot. He shared with me this picture. He was leading a, a march on one of the Islamic holy days. He would be the leader of the parade. Um, and now he's in a little sort of a discipleship school to learn how to be a better witness for Jesus. Now this is what it means to be, in many parts of the world, to be a witness for Jesus. It, it means to be sheep among wolves. And some of them said, I would have stayed if I didn't have small children whose lives could have been in danger. So this is the gospel moving forward. But and even in that situation, the church is exploding in Iran. They can't keep up with it. So my student who's been working with Iranians, he said, I've heard reports from ministries that the response to the gospel have increased rapidly since the onset of the pandemic. In one case, during the height of the pandemic, a Christian call center was receiving 10 times the normal number of Iranians calling. In general, the gospel spreads more rapidly as a population becomes more discontent with the government. And right now, if you've been watching the news, there's huge discontent. They're seeing the dark side of Islam. And this is an opportunity for the gospel. He said, personally, I see many Iranians coming to Christ very quickly. He said, I've had occasion of meeting an Iranian for the first time, and they already want to become a Christian. Who would have thought when the Islamic Revolution came to Iran that this would happen. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the power of the gospel. This is the book of Acts moving ever so 
surely to that conclusion when the gospel reaches the very ends of the earth and the vision of Revelation will be fulfilled that from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue there are those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And you have given me the unbelievable privilege of representing your church for over 40 years. And I'm profoundly grateful to God and, and to churches and friends like you who've made that happen. And, and those stories from Iran or Iraq or whatever, they're your stories too, because I wouldn't have been there if, if you hadn't sent me there. But you have your own stories to tell right here in Playa del Rey or Westchester or wherever you, you live. You're Jerusalem. Will you be a witness for Jesus? I want to finish out with one last uh, Steve Jobs quote, if you don't mind. So, okay, so Steve Jobs, as we know, became very wealthy. At age 23, he earned a million. At age 24, he had 10 million. At age 25, he had $100 million. But this is what he said. He said, being the richest man in the cemetery doesn't matter to me. Going to bed at night saying we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to me. What is more wonderful than introducing a person to Jesus Christ? Taking a person from death to life because you have been a mouthpiece of the gospel and the Holy Spirit has used you to touch another person's life in that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in awe and wonder at the power of your Spirit, empowering your witnesses, that the gospel of Jesus Christ moves out to the ends of the earth. And you've called us in big and little ways to be a part of that. May you encourage us and give us courage to be your witnesses to your glory. Amen.